are now listening to the August 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today, we'll study the word from 1 Kings chapters 8 through 10 and 2 Chronicles chapters 5 through 9. These two sets of chapters, one set from 1 Kings and the other from 2 Chronicles, basically cover the same events, how Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant to the temple and how he dedicated the temple and once those were done, how he managed his domestic and foreign affairs. The temple construction was completed after seven years and six months. Now that the temple structure was in place, Solomon was ready to move the Ark of the Covenant and place it inside the temple. And he needed to do that properly. According to the law, Solomon gathered the elders and leaders of Israel and recruited the chief priests to transport the Ark of the Covenant by carrying it on their shoulders. After moving the Ark of the Covenant, they were trying to make plans for the dedication of the house of God. Solomon wanted to get the timing of his dedication right. He decided on conducting the dedication during the Feast of Booths. Scholars explain the reason behind Solomon's choice of timing. The Feast of Booths was celebrated as a day to thank God for a bountiful harvest. For that, people gathered in Jerusalem and they would be filled with joyful hearts. As part of the celebration, lost work was restored, slaves were freed, prisoners were freed, and debt was forgiven. The timing fell on the seventh year and even the land was given rest from being tilled to produce crops. Therefore Solomon thought the Feast of Booths provided the proper timing to celebrate the dedication of the house of God. All the Israelites gathered in Israel for this celebration. The chief priests and the Levites brought the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle in Jerusalem that King David had set up. They also brought the tabernacle in Gibeon and all the furnishings for the temple. Then an awesome thing happened. The moment the chief priests came out of the tabernacle, after placing the ark in the inner sanctuary of the temple, clouds filled the temple. The splendor of glory that filled the inside of the temple was so thick and awe-inspiring, the priests could not perform the service. Standing before the whole assembly of Israel, Solomon blessed his people. He then knelt before the altar of the Lord. He prayed to God. Solomon's prayers are recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 through 53, and 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 12 through 42. He prayed, God told my father David, You shall not build a house to my name. Behold, A son will be born to you, and he shall build a house for my name. 
I have built a temple for the name of God, and the Lord has fulfilled his promise. When the Lord led our ancestors out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. I have prepared a place for the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the covenant. After praising God in his prayer, Solomon then rose from before the altar with all the people looking. With his hands spread towards heaven, he gave a prayer of dedication to God. In the prayer, Solomon said, There is no God like the God of Israel. He asked God to dwell in the temple and protect Israel. He also asked God to judge between the evil ones and righteous ones, to forgive the one who sinned and cause Israel to be defeated in battle, and to forgive the ones who sinned and caused a drought. He also asked God to forgive the sins of those who caused famine in the land, to have mercy on those foreigners that revere God, to bring victory in battle, and to free those who have been taken captive. Then Solomon said to his people, Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, and to keep his commandments as of this day, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 61. Then Solomon gave peace offerings to God. He sacrificed a staggering number of animals in his offerings, in total 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were offered to God. After celebrating the dedication of the house of God, Solomon then proceeded to build his palace. While it took seven years to build the temple, it took 13 years to build his palace. Altogether, he spent 20 years in building projects to construct the temple and his palace. Once everything was completed, God appeared to Solomon again and said, I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprighteousness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes, my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. But if the Israelites turn away from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. God ended his speech to Solomon with a stern warning about what would happen if the Israelites go astray. Alas, even after such direct warning from God, Israel would take the path of spiritual destruction in the coming years. We will revisit this terrible eventuality later as our story develops. For the time being, Solomon remembered and obeyed God's word. He governed the people of Israel with God-given wisdom, and he expanded the land beyond what he inherited from his father, King David. In addition to developing trade routes on land, he began to trade through sea and developed ocean trade routes. Geographically, Israel was located at the crossroads of Africa, Middle East, and Europe. People from different parts of the world converged on Jerusalem 
and it became the center of cultural and industrial activities. The city was filled with skilled craftsmen and intellectuals. The Bible says Israel had silver as common as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. The era of Solomon's reign marked perhaps the most affluent time in Israel's history. Eventually, Solomon's wisdom became known all over the world. Many people from surrounding nations came to witness Solomon's wisdom. Among them was the Queen of Sheba. According to scholars, Sheba was located in the southwest peninsula of Arabia and it was 2,400 kilometers away from Jerusalem. The Queen of Sheba came from afar and brought many gifts such as spices, gold, silver, and precious stones. Her only purpose for visiting Jerusalem was to meet King Solomon. She wanted to see for herself whether all the stories surrounding Solomon were true. When she came and met with Solomon, she was not disappointed. In the end, she acknowledged that his wisdom was from God and surpassed that of all other learned people. To show her appreciation, she gave him gifts of 120 talents of gold, which converts to four tons in today's measurements, and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. According to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6-9, through 9, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men! How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom! Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. In this way, even the foreigners were able to observe and appreciate the wisdom of Solomon. In the end, they praised and gave glory to God. Solomon continued to expand Jerusalem to the north and west. Jerusalem expanded three times greater compared to when David reigned in it. The glory and splendor shown during Solomon's reign was surpassed by none. The wealth of his people enjoyed could be compared nothing in the past or in the future. Nonetheless, such glories and riches gradually started to crumble towards the latter part of his life. It was due to the sin that slowly creeped into Solomon's life, most notably through his marriage policy. You see, Marrying princesses and noble women from pagan countries had become a big part of his foreign policies. We'll continue on with the story of kings next time. Until then, goodbye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is The Church, a family that stands firm together. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with or you can pull up somewhere, let me invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Like amidst all the challenges in the world, amidst all the challenges to unity in the church, amidst anything and everything you might be facing right now, I want to urge you today to stand firm in the Lord. There's one command in this verse, one command, stand firm. It's interesting. If you back up in your Bible, just a few pages, you'll find yourself in Ephesians chapter six, where Paul uses that same word repeatedly. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle Follow this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to, here it is, stand firm. Stand therefore. So let's just point out the obvious here. Like there are spiritual forces of evil led by the devil. Spiritual force of evil led by the devil whose aim at this moment is for you to fall. Like just let that soak in. Everyone else just right where you are sitting, there are spiritual forces of evil working right now to make you fall. Just feel that for a minute. They want you to fall. They want your mind and your heart to fall. They want your relationships around you to fall. They want your marriage to fall. They're working to bring your marriage down. They want your children to fall. They want your faith to fall. There are spiritual forces of evil who want our church, they want McLean Bible Church to fall. There are spiritual forces of evil who want me as a pastor to fall. They want other pastors and leaders to fall. They want Members of this church, every single one of you, they want to fall into worldliness, into division. And God is calling us in his word to stand firm in the Lord. God's not saying stand on yourself, stand on your thoughts and your ideas and your perspectives and your opinions. God never tells us to stand there. 
That's what leads to worldliness and division every time. Every time. Standing on yourself, you look back in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 19, that leads to, the word is destruction. So it's at this point, I, I just want to pause and say to everyone who's listening right now that there is a devil and there are spiritual forces of evil who want you to fall for all of eternity. They want you to fall forever. You and I, all of us, have sinned against God. We've turned from God's way to our own way. Our sin separates us from God, and if we die in our sin before God, we will spend eternity in judgment for our sin in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. This is the destination for all who stand firm on themselves. And I want to urge you today, even as I'm speaking to the church, like if you have never put your trust in Jesus as Lord, never stood in the Lord to do that today. Jesus has died on a cross to pay the price for all your sin against God. He is risen from the dead in victory over sin and the grave. And he has made it possible for anyone, anywhere to stand in eternal life forever and ever and ever. And I want to plead with you today to turn from yourself and sin and to trust in Jesus, to stand for the first time in the Lord today. And then when you do, to live there. This is, this is the word of God saying to us, stand firm in me. Now, this is interesting. Again, we'll get to this more another day, but in the very next verse, Philippians chapter four, verse two, Paul says, I entreat, so I urge, I beg, Yodia and Syntyche to agree, use the same phrase, in the Lord. So Paul is not just advocating for some vague, ambiguous unity in the church amidst threats to disunity. He's calling for a clear, concrete standing and agreeing in the Lord. Other things we really need to dive into because amidst this conversation around us, there are all kinds of temptations to worldliness, temptations to just think like the world thinks, and temptations to division, meaning we're tempted to share our opinions, and if some disagree, we conclude maybe we can't be in the same church. And I desperately want to lead us to stand and agree in the Lord. And God clearly calls us to hold fast to the gospel, to be faithful to his word, and to do justice. So how do we do that in the Lord? That's what we're after. And it's not just us. So this is what the Bible told Christians 2,000 years ago to be after. I want you to look back with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. So this is, in a sense, like the theme verse of this book in the Bible. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So be worthy of the gospel. Gospel, holding fast to it, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, here it is again, same word we are reading in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, standing firm. 
in one spirit with one mind, striving, I love this language, side by side for what? What are we striving side by side for? For the faith of the gospel. Yes, that's that's it. Like members of McLean Bible Church, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and stand firm together in one spirit with one mind, striving. Yes, let's strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Yes, yes, yes. This is what we want. This is what God wants for our family. So, do you see the language? So now go back to Philippians chapter four, verse one. I keep using the word family. Why, why do we use that kind of terminology? Well, because Paul writes to the church and he does this all over the place. He says, therefore, my what? My brothers. And we know sisters are included here because the next two verses, specifically about individual women in the church. And this is language that the Bible uses over and over again to describe the church as a family. This is biblical language of brothers and sisters and it's powerful imagery. It's a unique family. I talk about tension. We gotta remember this was a day when Jews and Gentiles were extremely divided from each other. Like you didn't eat at the same table with a Gentile if you're a Jew. Like don't get close to them. And Paul who's writing this was once a proud Jewish man. You look back in chapter three, verse four, Paul writes, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, like pride in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, Paul says, I am Jewish to the core and I was proud of it. Until Paul met Jesus, and some things started to radically change. Like up until that point, he was persecuting Christians. But now he was calling them family. Up until that point, Paul hated Gentiles. But now he's writing a letter to a church with many Gentiles saying, you're my brothers and sisters. This was strange countercultural and hard. Like, there were so many challenges that came with Jews and Gentiles being together in the same church and so many temptations for them to separate and have a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over there to do what we're so often tempted to do amidst so many issues. And Paul is addressing these kinds of issues in Philippians. That they're threatening the unity of the church, which is why, and I don't think we often realize this, but so much of the New Testament is actually written to keep the church together. Right, listen, just a quick sampling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. I'm appealing, I'm entreating, urging you, brothers. There it is, family language. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so unity around Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. To the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you, the language is so emotionally, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that's similar to what we see in Philippians chapter one, with all humility and gentleness, with 
patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain what? The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. To scatter churches, Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Which is why it's no surprise to see earlier in this letter to the church at Philippi, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ in the Lord, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, just listen to the language here, sympathy, complete my joy by being what? Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind. What's the mind that we need to have among you? Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Apparently, working for unity in the church has been a challenge for 2,000 years. And unfortunately, we live in a day where we can run from this work. Right? Let's be honest. Like we can, we can find another church down the street that fits more with our preferences or aligns more with our style or makes us more comfortable. You look at church growth in America, so much of it is due not to people coming to Christ, but due to people just switching churches. And it makes me wonder what would happen if we really pressed in together and did what God himself is telling us to do in these verses. Like if we pray together, we fast together, we open his word together and with affection and sympathy and love and humility, the very attitude of Jesus himself, like it takes, come back to Philippians 4.1, a unique family to do that kind of work. A kind of family that's marked by, so follow this, love. A family that's marked by love. And the word Paul uses here is the strongest, richest, deepest possible word for love in the Greek language. So if that wasn't sufficient, he then ends the sentence by saying, my what? my beloved. We read that word in our Bible reading this last week, Matthew chapter three, when God the Father, as Jesus was baptized, said, this is my what son? My beloved son. Think about that. This is how Paul felt for the church, like the father feels for the son. That's powerful. I'm not assuming that I'm to the level Paul was, but I think this is why I've been sick to my stomach over recent weeks and not sleeping. Because I, I hear from church members who are hurting, some from issues of racial tension in our country, others from 
confusion or frustration in the church from so many different sides. And others who are just struggling in life, in marriage, with kids who are far from the Lord, who are struggling with sin, finances, struggling with faith. Sure makes me long for us to be together in our different locations. Like the church is a family marked by longing. How appropriate is that word in a pandemic? Now, let's make this clear. I'm glad I'm not where Paul was when he wrote this letter, so I'm not in prison. But it is right to feel physical longing for church family. And even as we're testing out protocols to want to work together, we've said at different points that we want We want to be on the cutting edge of a variety of things, but large gatherings with thousands of people across our city in a global pandemic is not one of them. So we want to learn from others on this one, go slow, but know this, it's not for a lack of longing. And then there's these last two words that mark church family. And I'm going to call this, I'm going to write it down here at the bottom. I'm going to call this living for one another. And here's why. So these two words are fascinating. Paul calls the members of the Philippian church his joy and his crown. What is that about? Well, let's think about it. Think about joy. At the very beginning of this letter, Paul wrote Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Because of, why Why do I pray with joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So did you catch that? Paul finds joy in partnering together in the gospel with these brothers and sisters. He loves celebrating the gospel with them. He loves sharing the gospel with them. He loves living according to the gospel with them, which is why he tells them. So we read it earlier in Philippians chapter one, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that are standing firm in one spirit. We read this with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he writes right after that, what we read in Philippians chapter two, That's when he says, so uh, let's start right here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then he says, complete my joy. So same word that we see in Philippians chapter four, verse one, used here in Philippians chapter two, complete my joy. So Paul finds joy in what? In the church being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Paul finds joy, like the completion of his joy in seeing these brothers and sisters living according to the gospel, striving for the gospel, parting with the gospel in one mind. That's like joy to him, and I get it. That's what I long to see. Like what fills my heart with joy is seeing this church sharing the gospel, seeing hundreds upon hundreds of people baptized over the last year, like people coming to Christ, people growing in Christ, living according to the gospel, striving for the gospel in the world, like yes, 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 joy. It's just deepest kinds of joy, which leads to, so now back to Philippians 4.1, leads to crown, 
crown. You read that, you might immediately think of like a headpiece for something for somebody sitting on a throne, but that's not the imagery here. The word for crown here is used in other places in the New Testament to describe like the victory wreath that an athlete might celebrate with at the end of a race, like the culmination of what you've run or trained or worked hard for. And that makes sense. So now come back to Philippians chapter one with me. Oh, we're... Thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine, every prayer of mine for you, always making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Don't have the next part that's supposed to be there. Ah, bummer. Here's what it says. It says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So hold that in your mind. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Then he continues, it's right for me to feel this way about you all you because I hold you in my heart for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. So what do I pray for the church? Paul says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what's Paul praying for? Now think about what is Paul living for here? Paul is living to see these brothers and sisters stand complete on the day of Christ, to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Like picture Paul in a race. Like what is the, what is the motivation that Paul is running for at the end. The prize is people standing complete on the day of Christ. That's, that's what he's running for. That's why he says, Philippians chapter four, verse one, you're my crown. And that's why he tells them, because that's what I'm living for, so stand firm in the Lord, because he wants, he's living to see them stand firm in the Lord. Let me show you this one more place. 1 Thessalonians chapter two. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verse 19. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica this time, and he says, for what is our hope, or listen to these two words, joy or crown. Sound familiar? What is our hope or joy of crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming, when he comes? Is it not you, you, for you are our glory and joy. <laughs> like, yes. This is Paul living. This is what my life is about, Paul says. It's living to see you as brothers and sisters standing firm in the Lord on that day. And just in case you think I'm making this up, look down in verse eight of 1 Thessalonians chapter three. Paul says, for now we live if, you are standing fast, standing firm in the Lord. That's familiar language. You hear that? Paul says, I live to see you stand fast in the Lord. That's why I live, that's why I get up in the morning. It's what I'm working for, it's what I'm running for, it's what I'm toiling for, that's why I'm not sleeping, because I live to see you stand firm in the Lord. Like again, I, I, don't, I don't presume I'm Paul or anywhere close to it. But if there is one verse that summarizes what I feel as a pastor, it's this verse. 
I live to see you stand fast in the Lord. Like I live for them. Yeah, like I, I ran into a few church members this week. I say ran into like socially distanced. But they were, they were telling me as I was talking and they were telling me about how they were growing in their relationship with Christ. And I just thought, I live for this. One of them told me about being rushed to the hospital a few months ago and almost dying. Doctor said 97% of people with what he had would have died. And in tears, this brother told me how in that ambulance he had such peace. He loves his wife and he loves his kids. But he said, I had peace, David, because I was, I was ready to see the Lord. And I live for you to be able to say that in that moment. Like I live for that. That's, that's my joy. I, I live to see each one of you, no matter who you are, what you look like, where you come from, what you struggle with, I live to see you standing in the Lord. This is the thrust behind all that I shared last week about the new chapter of our church, efforts to get every single person in a group because I want every single one of you with people in your life close to you, caring for you, helping you to stand firm and you doing the same for them. This is the kind of family the church is. People who love each other with the strongest, richest, deepest kind of love commitment that there is in our language. People who long for each other, who yearn for each other with the affection of Christ Jesus, who long yearn to strive side by side as partners in the gospel, and a people who live for one another. Say, I'm not, not living for me. I'm living to see you stand in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Like if you were in that ambulance at this moment, which you could be in the next moment. As we were talking, this brother and I, he said, David, I just, I realize what you, what you say, what we see in God's word is true, like I'm not guaranteed another moment. So if you are in that ambulance at that moment, do you know you have peace with God? Do you know you have eternal life in God? The answer to that question is not like resounding yes in your heart. I invite you, I urge you, just look to God right now in your heart and say, God, I need you to forgive me of my sin. God, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so I trust in you. Trust in you to forgive me of my sin through what Jesus did on the cross for me, his resurrection from the grave for me. I turn from myself and I put my trust in you. I don't wanna stand on myself anymore. I wanna stand in you. Oh God, hear that prayer. I pray among many people right now. Bring many people right now to stand in you today. And God, we pray you'd help us to stay there, to stand there amidst 
everything going on around us at the world, the church. God, we pray you help us to stand firm in you. And I pray before you for every single person listening right now. Please, oh God, help them to stand firm in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take my life, I lay it down At the cross where I am found All I have I give to you, oh God Take my hands and make them clean Keep my heart in purity That I may walk in all you have for me Oh, here I stand, arms open my
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels, with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. I would like to start today with Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The Hebrew word for trust is batak, which means to trust, rely on, depend on with a sense of being completely confident and feeling utterly safe. Trusting God is one of the fundamental lifestyle characteristics of the people of God. Trusting our Lord more than any worldly thing expresses our fearless confidence in His divine nature and acknowledges that He is worthy of our trust at all times. In the beginning of this year, God blessed me with a beautiful gift through a friend's invitation to a meeting where they honor parents with special needs children. I was moved to tears as I heard each parent's heart sharing their candid story of overcoming struggles and pain and rejoicing in hope and strength through the power of prayer and His living word. What stood out to me the most was the way they saw their children as God's gifts and loved them unconditionally with patience, kindness, and gentleness. They knew what it meant to rely on God every day and trust Him with bold faith and fearless confidence. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, A total of 12.8% of children under age 18 in the United States, or about 9.4 million children are estimated to have special health care needs. Children with special health care needs are present in 20% of U.S. households with children. This brings up the following question. How are these families getting involved in church communities? According to Melinda Jones-Alt's doctoral dissertation called Participation of Families of Children with Disabilities in Their Faith Communities, a survey of parents. More than 90% of church-going special needs parents cited the most helpful support to be a welcoming attitude toward people with disabilities. Only about 80% of those parents said that the welcoming attitude was present at their church. 
nearly 50% of special needs parents said they refrained from participating in a religious activity because their child was not included or welcomed. My beloved, let's pray God's blessings and wisdom for these precious families today. Father, we pray for families with special needs children. Draw each family to yourself and cause every heart to be receptive to the message of the gospel. Lord, bless special needs children. Draw their hearts to know you as their heavenly Father who loves them with your everlasting love. Show them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image and created for your glory. Lord, please protect their hearts from hearing all the cruel things that others might say about them. Fill their parents with wisdom to know their children's personalities, love languages, special needs and difficulties at an early age, so they can cultivate positive and loving relationships with their children. Fill them with confidence and courage so that with your help, they can become the most passionate and knowledgeable advocates for their children. Strengthen their hearts with your love and living promises whenever they are discouraged and overwhelmed. Listen to their heart cries of God and answer them with your heavenly peace and overflowing hope. Free them from all their fears in your perfect love. Lead them with your word Guide them with your wisdom and empower them to make right decisions for their families. Raise up godly teachers who have genuine love and passion to teach special needs children. Equip them with a proper training so they can develop educational activities and create programs that will benefit and meet the unique needs of each student under their care. Bless their parents and teachers with a spirit of unity to work together to help their students discover their interests, aspirations, God-given gifts, talents, and abilities early in their lives in order to use them for your glory. Father, bless special needs families with spiritual homes where they can worship you Learn your word and fellowship with other families of God who will welcome, understand, and encourage them with Christ-like love and compassion. Raise up leaders and ministries that will support and serve special needs parents and their children and establish specialized programs and proactive planning for their inclusion in church communities. Father, lead these families to find the place you have ordained for them in the body of Christ and fulfill their destinies for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Sunlight, all of my journey over the mountain. 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.